I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's the My First Gig podcast. Whoa. Sharing stories of first gigs and shows. Comedians sharing their memories. The fun and entertaining, exciting and crazy. With Dwayne Dugan as your host. It's the My First Gig podcast. Here we go. Hello and welcome to another edition of the My First Gig podcast. I am your host, Dwayne Dugan, world famous podcaster and a very funny boy. Back again with episode 8 of series 2. And my guest today is Django Gold. Django Gold is a writer for the Stephen Colbert Show, former writer for The Onion, and a stand up comedian. Before we chat to Django, how are you all doing, guys? Hope you're doing well. Hope you enjoyed the last episode with Carmen Lynch. In one of these mad jobs, just keep ourselves busy during all of this. I have assisted my mother in clearing out her attic. And what we found was basically everything that I owned in my child or teenage years. In boxes, in books, in whatever. From wrestling toys to Thomas the Tank Engine toys to McDonald's toys. Books, cards, tons of stuff. And... It's been real nice. I found a play that I wrote, which sounds very professional, but I will tell you I was 10 years old. It's called Murder. Uh, It's about murder. And I remember putting it on in my class in school. Like, it wasn't like we had a drama section or I did, like, something on the weekends or after school or anything. It was just, I just thought, right, I'm going to write a play. Took it into school, cast it, and I was like to my teacher, hey, we're doing this. And she was like, all right, sound. And I think she was the narrator based on the notes in the script. So yeah, it was a lot of fun remembering that. I wanted to find it years ago, but I thought it was gone forever. So I might, in an attempt to make some weird content, try and scrounge up some comedians and maybe do a live reading on Zoom or something and chuck it up on the social medias and stuff like that. It was nice finding memories though. I, I, I'm a mad hoarder in general. I'll add sentiment to anything, you know. I'll eat a banana and I won't throw away the skin because at the time of thought, it was the last banana I ever had. That's not true. That's a really bad example. That makes me sound dumb. It makes me sound dumb even the fact that, like, yeah, whatever. I'll add sentiment to anything. So, like, I have everything. But one thing I found is I found cards, like birthday cards, Christmas cards, communion cards. Um, oh, yeah. Communion, confirmation, a ton of stuff. Like, you want to talk about growing up in, like, Catholic Ireland? That definitely exists. I've got paintings of Mother Teresa. I've got a Jesus on the cross made out of clothes pegs. You know, there was... Actually, one of the funny things was a review from my own communion said that I had a great day, my aunts and uncles came, my brother and sister came, my cousins came, we had a party for five hours, and then we all watched football. (laughs) Which is mad, because... At the time, I didn't have any brothers or sisters and aunt and uncles and cousins didn't come. But I guess there's nothing funny about a 10-year-old child or an 8-year-old child being like, hey, 
made my communion, and then I watched football all by myself. Little lonely boy. But yeah, a lot of lot of old religious things, which is mad. I don't think they teach that today like this, unless it was like like I could, I can't imagine sitting down and be like, hey, make this of Jesus there out of your clothes pegs and your empty washing up liquid bottles. But kids probably won't. I don't know. Will kids even have physical memories? Like they'll pretty much have an Instagram account that their parents have made of all their baby photos before they're even two years old. It's like everything's just online now. You don't have to go through boxes and find all these things. You know, if you make a funny video or write a play, it'll be on the internet. Yeah, I wonder if that's a good thing. It's certainly good. I'm a big man for archiving anything that I do, partake in or whatever. I've got hard drives full of this stuff, so I guess having it up there in general would help. I don't know. Maybe the podcast. Is that it? This is it. This is, it. This is our memories now. You don't realize this. You're listening to your memories right now. I am your memories. When you're old and you're lying on your deathbed and you're sitting there being like, oh God. I wish I'd listened to more podcasts. I'll be there in the air being like, I'm here. Now tell me about your first memory of comedy. And so on. Will be the questions that you hear in your ear right before you pass on through. But luckily, when you hear those questions in your ear today, it won't be for you. It'll be for my guest today. Let's get on with it. Here we are. New episode of My First Gig with Django Gold. I'm not sure what the scene is like in Dublin, but in, in New York right now, we're on lockdown. And it's very, uh, very ghostly. You know, there's no one out and about. And it's kind of a, a surreal moment in time, but I'm, I'm hanging in there. You're indoors. You're kind of, what are you doing to keep yourself busy the last month and a half? Uh, a lot of cooking. I got a, uh, I got a PlayStation. I've been playing that a lot. Um, some reading, watching movies, really a lot of just kind of like puttering around, you know, I, I was hoping I would have some kind of ambitious project or something else to keep me occupied, but I'm mostly just hanging out, you know? I think it's, yeah, like it's, you see everybody like on Twitter or something like writing down being like, oh, turns out, you know, having free time wasn't the thing that was holding back. But I, I think no. it's, it's not usual free time. I think it's very hard for us to be motivated right now. Yeah, for sure. What's been your uh, your speciality so far? Cooking. Uh, I cook a lot of Italian food just because you don't really have to do any measuring. Okay. So, you know, I've been making a lot, a lot of pasta, like a chicken parm one night, uh, you know. Well, yeah, so a lot of that. I've been baking as well, baking brownies, which are nice. Those are the, those are the two main ones. And the the, the Cold Air Show is still going ahead. Are you, are you still contributing to that while this is all going on? Yes, we're, we're working from home, so either four or five days a week. So that's something else. That's something to keep you keep you sane. Yes, it is helpful having that Uh that that kind of structure, even if just to wake myself up in the morning, because God knows I wouldn't be doing it on my own. I, I imagine it's just a lot of those kind of Zoom meetings, as it, as if you're kind of sitting around the table, kind of discussing ideas and stuff. But do you see much of a difference in how you know presenting ideas or even just coming up with ideas in this new uh, new situation? Yeah, I mean, a, a conversation in general can't be as organic hmm. because, you, like, like in, in if you're in the room with someone, it, it's natural for your voices to kind of like overlap and so forth. I think on these Zoom meetings and, and Zoom in general, you know, it's more of like I talk than you talk, I talk than you talk. Yeah. So it's, it's a little more regimented, I think. Well, we're here to chat about your first gig. Before we do, I want to ask you, if I say what's your first memory of comedy, what comes to mind for you? The first thing that popped in my mind when you said that was The Simpsons. And that was like the first show I ever really got into. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> you have to edit that out. Um, 
that, that was a here in the U.S. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but that show is on repeats, like twice a day. Oh yeah. So it was a show show that I watched again and again and again, memorizing the lines. And so that was the first like piece of comedy that like I really became obsessed with. And what about stand up comedy then? When were you first introduced to stand up comedy? I mean, that's hard to say. I I guess probably the first special I remember watching was probably Dana Carvey's special. And that was the one where he had like the long bit about like, turning chopping broccoli into a song. That was him like riffing on like Ross Perot. So obviously, you know, it's like around like 1992 or so. That's the first stand up special I really remember. I actually didn't watch a ton of stand up comedy until I got into doing it myself. Yeah, that that's pretty common now. That that special now was that would, would it be on TV? Would you got the tape from somewhere? Was like a somebody in the house watching it? I think it must have been on television, probably Comedy Central. Back in like the mid nineties, Comedy Central only had like a very small amount of content, so they would run and rerun the same TV shows and the same uh, the same specials over again. So it must have been on Comedy Central. Very nice, and so. Yeah, you say you didn't go to see much stand up then until, or or kind of even watch stand up until you started to get into it. So we're talking two thousand and nine. What's what are you doing in two thousand and nine? Are you working? Are you in college? Two thousand nine, I just graduated school more or less, and at the time, I fancied myself a musician. I was playing a lot of guitar and piano, and I was living in Boston. And there was this little bar near my apartment called The Alchemist. And I would go there on Monday nights and perform like little acoustic guitar songs. And at that same open mic, comedians would come by and run their five-minute open mic set. And I, after a few times watching that, I got the idea in my head of, I could do this. I should think up some jokes, you know. So at that point, I got a notebook and just started jotting things down. And after about two weeks of that, I went up there and did my debut. And that was what I would say is my first time on stage as a comedian. Was it was it music that you wanted to follow, or what? What was the plans after graduating school? Were you hadn't, like I said, yeah, any, any idea of where you wanted to go? I don't know. I mean, at the time, I was just like an English major with no real direction. Hmm. I mean, I knew I knew I was pretty good at writing, and I knew I liked writing. So I figured, like, the logical extension of that is I'll be a journalist. That seemed like a job that a writer would do. So I was like vaguely pursuing that, but not with really any, any passion or skill. I was just kind of like messing around, really. And music was never really anything that outside of fantasies that I thought would be any kind of career, you know. So I'm trying to picture it here. Maybe you can tell me better how how it is. So if you're going to these Monday night shows, performing some music, some songs, and then there's people getting up and doing five minute sets. Now, mm-hmm. there's a few of those in Dublin. I've never set foot in one of them because I think they terrify me. I need to go into an audience right. knowing that they're there to watch comedy and that's what they've signed up for. Yes. So you going there, performing music and then getting the idea that you wanted to do it yourself. Was it a welcoming environment? Was it nice? Was it just, was it that the fact that you'd, you'd already been up on there, up on stage in front of people there? It felt kind of low stakes, I guess, because comedians would go there with material they had like half sketched out. And, you know, sometimes it would go over well, sometimes it would go over less well. So based on seeing that and based on like it not seeming to have any huge impact, like it wasn't like a big fanfare event. It was a very casual neighborhood thing. So I wasn't, I was, I was no, I'll put it this way. I was no less intimidated by it, or rather I was no more intimidated by it than I was by the idea of doing music. And in a sense, it felt even less scary because music, you know, you have to be able to like, 
like you have to be able to play, use your fingers and sing and so forth in time. It has to be very precise. Comedy, when you're on stage, at its elemental level, is just talking. I was like, oh, I can get up there and talk. Sure, that's easy. I'm t- I talk all the time, you know. For whatever reason, I didn't. It wasn't that scary my first time. It's definitely been scarier in times since then. Yeah, like I'm thinking, if you're happy getting up there and singing a song, like I, regardless of what your content of a comedy set would be, singing seems far more kind of intimate and personal. It's kind of, I guess, more vulnerable even. So yeah, yeah talking's definitely sounds a bit easier in that respect. At this point now, had you had you ever seen a stand-up comedy show, gone to comedy clubs or anything like that, or is this your first time seeing it? That's a good question. It may have been one of my first times seeing it. I, like I was saying, I wasn't really a huge comedy fan up until that point, which is a very weird thing now that I'm saying, because like usually how it works is you admire someone coming up and then you tr- decide to imitate it. So I'm not, I'm not even really sure what business I had doing this in the first place. But um, yeah, I mean, this was also 2009. This was before the second big comedy boom. So there wasn't like the world wasn't saturated with comedy like it, like it is now, you know, it was kind of a more eccentric thing. So I'm not really sure what inspired me to get up there other than like, oh, that could be fun. I'm funny. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Did you kind of befriend any of the people getting up there doing five minutes before you gave it a go? I had known them in certain, like, I'd seen them around, you know, but I wouldn't say any of them were my friends. Like we were friendly. We would see each other at these events, but I didn't really start to know any of them until I started doing the comedy. And at that point, you know, you started hanging out with people at bars after shows and so forth and so on. So then it became more of a social thing. But at the time I was like a total like stranger in the strange world. So when you decide then, right, I actually might go give this a go. Like, what do you do then in preparation? Do you, to give yourself some time? Do you like, how'd you go about writing when I guess it's, it's, Obviously, you've, you know, 
as you said, as an English major, you know, writing is something that you enjoyed, but writing a set that you're going to then recite is a, is a very different thing. Yeah. If we're talking about 2009, if I recall, I just had this notebook and I would just start writing stupid ideas that came to mind. I think one of the first jokes I wrote was like, like kind of like a, like a one liner. The joke is essentially, um, so my friend and I have a running joke about treadmills and it's like, you know, concise shit, like dumb like that. So if I recall, I was doing a lot of like one liners and short line jokes like that. I don't really, I don't really remember how I was doing this other than just like, if a funny idea popped in my head, I would write it down. And because I was such an amateur, I had no like filter as to what was good or not. If it, if it was a complete joke, I just wrote it down and it was going in the act, you know? My stand, my stand, standards were not very high at the time. <laughs> sure, and like, was this a thing then when you when you decided to do this? Was this something that you kind of let people know about, or is this something that you did under the radar? Oh God, no! I mean, I don't, I cannot imagine anything worse than having people you know show up to one of these open mics. I mean, I don't know if you guys have them there in Dublin, but the, the, even back in two thousand nine, when it was still fresh to me, it was still kind of a dismal situation, and you wouldn't really want your friends to be there. That being said. I did have two roommates at the time, so I believe I coerced them into coming or maybe like they came against my will, that type of thing. But usually with these open mic situations, you really don't want anyone from the real world there. You want to keep it in like this little, you know, cell of shame. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess you probably had a bit more awareness having been there previously, you know, performing music because I think the naivety and a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, look, I'm going to go do this. And you think that, you know, you're going to go perform and it's going to be 3000 people and lights and mm-hmm. <laughs> staging and all that so yeah so yeah so when you decided that like is it like a sign up kind of a thing yeah i think it must have been like a sign up you you get there like half an hour early get on the list throw your name in the bucket that type of thing um yeah and then that was off to the races you know like you said it was easier as an idea than up there and singing a song so do you remember like in preparation knowing right today's the day this evening that's it it's tonight like are you getting nervous? Are you, are you getting stressed out? How's your How's your day leading up to it? I I must have been because I still do get nervous going on stage, so I certainly must have been nervous at the time. And I definitely, um, I definitely like proceeded as an amateur. You know, I, I went up there like with the notebook, just kind of reading things off the page, not really looking at the crowd, like s- speaking very quietly. Because like that was always a big problem I, until relatively recently. Is that whenever I, I was on stage in any capacity, be it playing music or uh, doing comedy, I would always speak very, very quietly and almost unnoticeably. And obviously that's not what you're supposed to do on stage. So I'm sure I was just out there just mumbling through God knows what to, to, to a, to a barroom crowd. And yeah, you're saying that you kind of, you still get nervous today. So how has that changed? Or is that something that like, cause I, like, I think a lot of people, you know, they either let their nerves go or some people keep them and you know, it's a, it's probably a, a good thing to have cause it keeps you on your toes and keeps you ready. Has it like, mm-hmm. but have the nerves gotten easier over time? Yeah, I think part of it is that like, um, I mean, I guess for me, I'm only nervous up until the moment I get on stage. Sure. And at that, at that point, it's like, okay, Jesus, time to go. Like, there's no, like, there's no more time to think and to cogitate about this. Like, we have to do the thing we're supposed to do up here. So it's only the nervousness of anticipation. And then once you're there, you just get kind of like, it's like, it's like you could get up to the edge of a cliff. And that's the nervousness, and then you fall over, and that's the show. Because like, there's nothing you can do to think at that point. You just kind of have to do it, you know. And I still do get nervous leading up to any show, but 
yeah, I, I think I, maybe I've gotten better at it just because I've done it so many times accepting the nervousness, but it doesn't truly go away, I don't think. You gave us the, the treadmill one earlier. Do you remember any other jokes from those early days that you don't mind sharing? Yeah, it was mostly, sure, I don't remember any specifics, but it was mostly like pedophile jokes and like stuff to like really offend people, you know? I had like this very like immature idea, like the, the goal I was supposed to do was like really like kind of like push people's buttons and really say, say a bunch of outrageous stuff, which is not entirely different from what I do now, come to think about it. But um, it was a lot of like, yeah, kind of like, like body, like offensive material, not very well formulated. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's the difference is a, is a lot of people in those like early days, I, I was guilty of myself and I know so many other people who were, it's like, you think that, right, okay, if you can offend someone, that's funny, but you forget that the offensive thing has to actually, as you said, have a bit of structure and at the root of it all, be a joke. Yeah, yeah. It has to mean something, I would like to think. Say something about something. I, I mean, it's the equivalent of like throwing a flashbang into a room or like, you know, throwing firecrackers into a room. It's just like a, a bunch of noise, essentially. It's gotten taken a while before I can like harness that noise into something a, a little more uh, useful. I would say. Any memories of that night? Did it go uh, to go well for you? I think it went okay. I, think <laughs> I got a few la- a few laughs. I remember at one point telling some joke that didn't really land, and just looking out and seeing like the silent room, and, and, and like just kind of thinking to myself, "Oh yeah, yeah." that makes sense that would happen like because you've never d- done this before so you don't really have like the cause and effect of how it works and just like realizing oh yeah if you fuck up and say something that isn't funny you're gonna get a silent room and that feels bad like put put that memory away you might need that later like so i remember that reaction and i think i must have been i think i, I must have got off on stage and been really hyped about it because from that point on i was doing it a lot and it kind of like led into you know, doing it for the past 10 years. So I guess it was a favorable experience. You're the most either modest or honest person because everyone's like, oh, yeah, when, when, like for, I guess within context of it being your first gig and all that, but yeah, you're the first to just go, uh, it's okay. It's okay. Do people u- u- usually say that they crush it up there? Well, like if I had to answer mine, I would have said mine went very well. Now I've, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I've got a tape of it and I've seen it back. It is dreadful, but like, right. <laughs> People didn't expect anything of me, including myself, and it went a lot better than that. But you mm-hmm. know, within that context, but I think it's yeah, it's definitely relatively speaking when when people say they did well, but it's always just I guess because they have nothing to compare it to. So, yeah, and and I guess that's the driving force to to want to go up and do it again. And also, there's a selective memory at play where, like you know, assuming that you're a narcissist because you're doing this in the first place, you're gonna only remember the things that reflect good reflect well on you you know so you remember the one laugh you got in five minutes of otherwise silence i think that's a, a driving force for a lot of comedians yeah and I, i've seen photos of my first first show and there's a lot less people in the photos than there is in my memory <laughs> a lot less right so once yeah once you did it you, you you wanted to do it again was it like a kind of a thing of right i need to get back up there or is it a kind of a thing that you kind of dipped in and out of for a while yeah, I definitely had the bug, you know. I think you like you get that high of being on stage, you get that high of like chasing a good crowd response and all the, you know, endorphins that sets off in you. So, I was definitely addicted pretty quickly. If, if I recall, you know, like I would I kept going back to that same mic. I would go to other bars that had mics. I would try to really get there and, you know, over the course of the next like 2 or 3 years maybe I was like pretty seriously into it, you know, performing multiple multiple times a week trying to advance whatever that meant at the time so it lasted me at least two or three years at which point i took a pretty long break 
um, and, that, and that was like 2011 to 2013 or 14. What forced the break? Um, I had moved to New York City and I was doing the same open mic things, the same open mic thing at various open mics in New York, which are n- notoriously unforgiving. In New York, the, the mics and even the showcase shows tend to be less enthusiastic, less well attended, and the people there are, definitely are less supportive. And it makes the experience much worse. And I really wasn't enjoying it. And also at the time, I had um, gotten an internship at The Onion, which I don't know if, you're, uh, if your Irish listeners know is like a satirical newspaper we have here in the US. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, great. So, yeah, so I had the internship there, and that had led to me being a contributor which meant I was sending in uh, email lists of headlines every week. It was 15 headlines a week. And I was so devoted to that and so um, intent on hopefully getting a job at The Onion someday, I rationalized quitting comedy or I rationalized quitting stand-up as saying, okay, I'm going to put all of my energy into this Onion thing. Where obviously looking back, I, I was just not doing the stand-up because it was terrible and demoralizing. But that's that's also something that I, I was curious about. So you wrote for The Onion for a few years and then obviously now writing for The Colbert Show. How do you manage, I guess, having these these other outputs of, you know, I guess, what, what would be comedy writing, but then also still trying to maintain writing for yourself if, when needs be? Yeah, it can be difficult. I mean, it's a lot of, like, my job and my, my private stand-up, my private comedy, they all take takes a lot of time and energy. But one thing that happens when you start doing this a lot is that it becomes hard to turn off your brain Mm. so that I'm always basically generating ideas for something or another. And it's just a means of like thinking, okay, I'm going to work on some stamps today or I'm going to work on some writing today. So it becomes one of those things that just is like very, very automatic, I would say. I don't really have to try to motivate myself because I'm always doing it at this point. So it probably has you in a good headspace for what you're doing then. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's great in terms of productivity. It can, it can be kind of exhausting. And I'm also concerned that I'm not even aware of how exhausted I am sometimes because I'm just <laughs> al- always doing it. You know, I'm a, like, you know, when Wiley, I, when Wiley Coyote realizes he's running in o- over thin air off the cliff, you know, I'm always kind of waiting for that moment to happen where my body's like, okay, time to stop thinking and writing and thinking, you know, but so far so good. And look, sure. Maybe some of this time here now might give you, a day or two to switch off at least. A bit more PlayStation, a bit more cooking. I've certainly had a, more than a day or two. <laughs> Tell me, what was the name of this uh, this bar where the open mic was at? Uh, it was called The Alchemist. and The Alchemist. I, in, in the neighborhood of Jamaica Plain, Boston. But unfortunately, it has since closed down. I don't know if there's another bar in its place or another, uh, another restaurant or what have you. But sadly, The Alchemist is no more. But it was a great, it was a great little spot when, when it was there. What I want to do to leave it with this is if I could take you back to The Alchemist, but take you back today and right before you're going to go up on stage for the first time, you got your jokes ready, you know you're going to perform in front of a crowd mm-hmm. and you were able to take yourself aside for a minute or two, what do you think you'd say to yourself if you had that chance? <laughs> uh, speak up, engage the crowd, which are still pieces of advice I still find myself having to do even to this day. Because sometimes I feel like I'm just reciting jokes as opposed to like engaging, having a conversation with the crowd. I think that's something I still have a problem with right now. Actually, I might I might go again with that, except instead of the alchemists, if I could do it when you're going to those New York clubs 
and you're kind mm-hmm. of maybe it's not as welcoming, not as friendly, not as. What about somebody in that kind of situation? What would you say to them? Fuck these guys, man. They don't know a damn thing. <laughs> Plain know. and simple. I mean, yeah, I, I I don't have a lot of positive connotations with that that period of doing mics because you know you're just showing up, not knowing anyone, playing to a dead room, going home. Not not, not a lot of fond memory lane trips down there. What what got, what got you back into it? Um, I'd always like wanted to get back into it at some point, and I think like I'd been off it for like two or three years, and uh, I just had it's like. I just like had like the hunger for it again. And I, I was also kind of like, I was, I'd also moved to Chicago for this uh, job of the onion, which I'd ultimately gotten. And I, you know, I was like, Oh, it's a new city. We'll try this out see how it goes. You know, I feel like I'm, I've developed a little more, maybe I'll be a little bit better at it right now. And you know, it, it worked out much better in Chicago, Chicago for the record, very welcoming, great comedy scene. I think I, I really, really was able to develop there just cause it's more, it's friendlier more social and like you know there's just more options than you would find in new york thank you so much for chatting your your first gig your first time on stage with me tonight no problem Dwayne. thanks for having me there we go thank you very much to django gold for joining me today on the podcast hope you had fun guys if you'd like to go follow django at django on twitter go watch the stephen colbert show he's still working on it it's still airing even from people's own houses so Go check it out. Support him that way. If you enjoy the pod, head on over to at my first gig pod, wherever you have your social media, as long as it's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and tell me that you had fun. If you enjoyed me chatting to you and whispering earlier on your deathbed, and you would like me to actually say nice things on your deathbed, uh, as opposed to, you're going to die, which is probably the most insensitive thing that I've just said, considering that there's a global pandemic going on. But sure, that's what editing's for. And sure, haven't I left this in? Sure I have. How many times have I said sure now? Too many times. But has it distracted from the fact that I was just joking about debt? Oh, you betcha. If you've enjoyed listening to me, so go over to at Dwayne Dugan, give me a follow, like, whatever. I used to be a comedian. Not a, I don't have a clue what's going on now. Will I ever get again? Who knows? Will there ever be podcasts again? Of course. That's all there is now. Just podcasts and pandemics. Sounds like a snazzy brunch that you have to buy a ticket to and there'll be like a reverse auction for like a yacht or something podcast and pandemics with Wayne Dugan today we're raising money for the all the people that uh, see there we go I'm gonna go away before I say something really bad hope you had fun in the episode today guys we'll see you back next week with another episode of my first gig podcast until then cheerio it's the my first gig podcast whoa